The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the beginning of our Eightfold Path, our investigation of the actual factors, starting today with right view. So I'm Chris Clifford. I think most of you were here last month, and I'm delighted to be sharing the day and quite a bit of the teaching this year with Kim Allen. Uh, Kim's been a student here for, oh, I don't know, 15 years, something, long time. (laughs) Um, In the time that I've known her, she's been our board president, and she's gone through the chaplaincy training program. She's currently volunteering as a chaplain. She has a sitting group in Los Gatos that meets Sunday mornings. And um, I think you're you're teaching all over the Bay Area in different ways now and then. Is that the highlights? (laughs) Okay. Anyway, I'm really happy to have Kim uh, being one of the co-leaders of this program along with Bruni, who you met last month, and myself. So um, I think I'll turn it over to Kim now for our sit and uh, the first introduction of the study of Right View. So we'll begin by settling in with a bit of meditation. So please take a posture that is upright and relaxed. One where you can be alert and also at ease. It's helpful to take a long, slow, deep breath, filling the lungs completely and then letting it out slowly, just allowing the air to naturally get pushed out of the lungs and inclining the body toward relaxing. You can do that a couple of times if it feels comfortable. It can help to even rock back and forth a little bit, forward and back, to find that place of stability on the base that you're sitting on. So feeling your seat against the chair or the bench or the cushion, feeling your legs or feet against the floor and finding some balance. Gently softening the face. We often hold tension or some expression on our face and for now we can let that go, relaxing, softening around the eyes, the mouth, the jaw. can help to imagine a small space between the very top of the spine and the base of the skull, allowing the neck to naturally relax. Releasing the throat, there's no need to be talking. Allowing the shoulder blades to slide down the back. Softening the shoulder joints. 
allowing the arms and the hands to soften. Just placing the hands simply somewhere in your lap or folded against your knees. Relaxing down through the torso, the heart, the lungs, the rib cage. Softening the belly. Really allowing it to round out or sink down farther into the abdomen. Releasing the internal organs, the stomach, liver, spleen, intestines. Just softening that whole middle space. Down into the hip joints, lower belly, groin muscles. Again, feeling that base where you're sitting, just opening the body and relaxing, allowing it to support you. And then any ease that can be brought to the legs, the knees, the ankles. widening the awareness to feel the whole body sitting, the form of the body in the sitting posture. And if there are parts that are still feeling tense or sore or parts that couldn't be felt so clearly, that's fine. allowing ease in the mind with how the body is right now, being at ease in this posture. Now turning the attention toward the sensations of breathing. Very simple, elemental feelings like the movement of the air through the nose, the back of the throat, into the chest. Feelings of expansion, of tension on the in-breath. Relaxation, contraction on the out-breath. Noticing the temperature of the air. Noticing how the body moves in response to the breath. this simple, repetitive flow of sensations that we know as the breath, but that's actually this whole cascade of sensations, 
when the mind has picked up some, something else and maybe begun to think their memories or plans or concerns or fantasies. It's okay. Once we've seen that, we just allow the breath and the body sensations to come into awareness again. Mindfulness is said to be kind attention. So we're gentle with our body, with our thoughts. Touching our experience with awareness and kindness. This is also receptive attention, receiving, open to what arises. There's no need to manufacture experience. Instead, we meet it, or open to it. (coughs) Some people say observe it. It's a way of relating to the mind and body that is inclusive. And always there's the possibility of touching back into the breath, the body. 
which are certainly in the present moment. to be here for this body, this mind, this life, to be here for what's happening. Staying with experience in the present moment. Noticing the quality of the mind at this moment. It may be calm, agitated, worried, doubtful, judgmental, happy. Just sensing how is the mind
beginning the habit of checking into the mind. touching into any sense of well-being that may have evolved during this period of meditation. And even if it's not so clear, you can at least be aware that having spent this time was a great gift for yourself and for the others that you interact with. So feeling some sense that this has been a good thing to do. Good. So, as Chris mentioned at the beginning, this is the first step of the Eightfold Path that we're going to be looking at this month. So today we'll be talking about what's called right view. And then you'll have the month to practice with that. It's also called wise view. Of course, sometimes the word right triggers right and wrong and those sorts of judgmental associations. So sometimes it's called wise view. But in some ways, as I reflected on this, I felt that even these are unfortunate terms in a certain way because it seems to imply that there's a view that we're going to adopt that's the right one or the wise one, whichever word you want. You know, like a, like a belief or a doctrine in some way. And some religions you know, function this way, especially in the West. In Buddhist practice, however, views are seen and held differently, even though it's that word view. And so we're going to spend today uh, exploring uh, exploring what this what this term means and what it means in our practice, how we can work with it in practice. So we'll start right there, actually, with 
what is a view? I mean, I know that we all know this English word. We, and we could give some definition of it and it would be fine. But overall, the, the way we're going to talk about this today is that views are the orientations and perspectives, beliefs and stories that inform how we live our lives. Okay? So there's many layers and types of views. And they tend to interact also, which leads to complication. Yeah? Um, I'm going to use some concrete examples to describe a little bit of this. And it might be interesting to notice how your mind responds to hearing various examples of views. So I thought about a lot of different kinds of views, actually. It's like animals in the zoo or something that you can look at. They all look a little different, but, you know, you know they're all animals, right? So some views are kind of surface-level opinions. For example, it's boring to watch golf on TV or violet is a beautiful color, yeah? And then there are views that are more like values, actually. So, for example, being with family is more important than doing something I like. So my grandparents used to watch hours of golf on TV, (laughs) and I don't think it's very interesting. But even as a teenager, uh, I used to join them in that activity sometimes. Um, so even at that age, I had a sense that there were times when my family connection could override what I wanted to do at that particular moment. Yeah. Um, so that's a value, but then you know, the value of being with family was important at that moment. Some values do become strong enough to be called beliefs. We probably carry these. So here are some examples. I believe in the holiness of Jesus Christ. Or stealing is always wrong. Or Buddhists should be vegetarian. And then there are views that are more like um, perspectives or orientations which describe how we assign meaning. So, for example, one co- a person could say, I see loss as an opportunity for growth. Or they could say, look for the good in people. You know, these are perspectives or orientations that we might bring to our life. And then there are stories which assign meaning to a longer string of events. My life is a failure. My mom exemplified generosity. Things that imply something more, you know, a more complete analysis of some kind. Our deepest views, I think you're getting the flavor by now, but our deepest views are actually not seen as views. They're seen as the way things are. So, for example, I am a separate entity moving through a world that impinges on me in various ways. Many of us carry an idea like this as we walk through the world We may not even see it as just one view. So views are the product of our thinking mind, essentially. They're a part of the cognitive function of the mind. They don't necessarily have to be articulated as thoughts, as words, like the examples that I read. Um, But that's, that's the part of the mind that they come from. And our usual relationship to views 
is to continue applying the thinking mind and thus evaluate them for being right or wrong, for being something that we agree with or disagree with, for being something that we should act on or ignore or contest. So think back for a moment. Did your mind do that with some of the views I just read? Were there some that that instantly sparked a response of agree or disagree? Even simple statements like if I say, you know, violet is a beautiful color, your mind might have said, well, I like blue better. (laughs) You know, I don't know what your mind said to that. But the tendency is when we hear one of these is to immediately categorize it or, you know, somehow think about it. This may not be an especially helpful relationship to a view. It often leads to complication and conflict. So, for example, if I carry the belief that spending time with family is more important than doing what I like, then what am I going to do when I feel a strong urge suddenly to skip going home for the holidays and attend a meditation retreat instead? So suddenly I have two different ideas in the mind. And so what usually happens is that we start creating additional parameters around that. And we say, well, since I was home over the summer, it's okay to skip the holiday season. Or, um, or I'm fine missing my morning meditation for family need now and then, but um, a whole week-long retreat is a completely different category. And so that kind of deep spiritual wish overrides my family obligations. I don't know if that's what your mind would have done with that. But I'm giving an example that is supposed to point toward the fact that what we do in our minds is we build up a complex structure of views. Are you starting to see this? Um, And we continually kind of work on it, tweaking it here and there so that it looks okay. Sometimes we have to change a whole section and then that has ramifications throughout. The mind is carrying a lot of this around with it and applying it. So the tangle that we get in is that this is all just more thinking, actually. And a lot of it is based on things that we can't completely know, if you really look at it. Um, here's another example about how we can make assumptions on our, around our views. Suppose, um, suppose my Aunt Bertha has this terrible sagging mattress um, that's been, she's had for 45 years. <laughs> and she also has back problems. And I am totally convinced that this mattress is part of the cause or is aggravating that in some way. And surely a new mattress would help at least. And so I suggest this to her. Um, But she refuses. She says, no, I'm not going to change my mattress. And so I may create all kinds of assumptions around that. I thought my view was perfectly reasonable. She must be crazy not to adopt that. But then... I learn, somebody else goes and talks with her because she won't talk to me because I'm too controlling and you know, telling her what to do with her life. But she talks with her friend uh, who tells me that the reason she's doing that is that that mattress reminds her of her deceased husband and it's one of the last things that she feels really connected to, related to him. And there's no way she's going to give it up even if her back hurts because for her that's more important. 
fortunately, we don't have to, in Buddhist practice, we don't have to sort through all of that. Um, this is an interesting relationship issue that I might need to work out with Aunt Bertha. But the orientation that's called right view in or wise view in Buddhist practice is a frame of reference that's not based on thinking in that same way. It's actually based more on direct experience. We learn to uh, take our cues from something besides the cognitive mind, the thinking mind that doesn't have all the information. Thinking mind very useful and we definitely should not abandon it. Um, It's a great tool and it's not a very sound basis for our spiritual development in the long run. So our experience, you know, our actual direct experience can point toward the path, toward a way of reducing and ending suffering. And we then can choose to walk on that path that is opened because of paying attention to our experience, like we just practiced in meditation. You know, we'll practice that, of course, in our daily life also. And that kind of attention that we're developing, that kind attention, that receptive attention, is what can help open for us that, that path. So it takes a little bit of practice to start using a frame of reference that's more experiential like that. That's why right view is a practice. It's not a belief. It's not, the, it's not placed first because this is what you have to believe in order to do this practice. It's placed first because it's on the path of practice like everything else and it provides that orientation. So it's actually part of wisdom. Uh, It's part of the wisdom portion of the path, if you will, which is where we begin. And don't worry if you feel like, I don't have wisdom. That's why I'm here. it's, it's kind of iterative. It's like you start, whatever wisdom you have, you start with, and then the rest of the path unfolds uh, to the point where you'll gain more wisdom and you'll do another round of it, if you will. Yeah, so, but the Buddha acknowledges that we have to have some wisdom to get started. And fortunately, you all have that because you're all in this room. So that's adequate. And we're going to look carefully now at uh, two particular forms of right view that the Buddha described. I'm going to talk about one form just in the next few minutes, and then we're going to have a chance to work with that. And then in the second half of the program, Chris is going to talk about the second form. So the first form of right view is to take the standpoint that what we do, say, and even think are consequential, that they matter. Things, these things have real results in our life uh, for us and for the people around us. You might say, well, that's not too difficult. And it's true, it's not too difficult. <laughs> Probably you believe that what you do, say, and think is consequential. Um, and that there are certain, you know, certain ones will have certain effects in a fairly repeatable way. 
this is the opening two lines, two stanzas of a text from our tradition called the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. So in other words, if we're acting based on, it says corrupted, but specifically that means based on greed, on hatred, and on delusion, then the result is going to be harmful in some way. You know, this image of the wagon wheel following the hoof of the ox, the implication is it's like you're the ox, you know, you're toiling along with this heavy thing, it's the heavy result, and it's a burden. However, if we act based on kindness and generosity and compassion with a pure mind, then happiness follows. Uh, the result is beneficial. And this image of a never-departing shadow is it's meant to be something light, you know, that's just there without any effort. So... This still isn't a belief that you need to adopt. It's one that the Buddha suggested is a helpful view. If you, he says, if you carry this view, then it is easier to develop the path. And this is something that you are invited to test and see if, if you notice, if you believe that acting with greed, hatred, and delusion is not going to be beneficial, and if you believe that acting with these other things is going to be beneficial, then you'll probably change your behavior that way, and lo and behold, you'll find that your life is going a little bit better than, you know, by adopting this particular set of values. Now, a corollary to this view is the idea that we have some influence in being able to choose whether we do harmful or beneficial actions there wouldn't be very much point uh, in believing these two stanzas about the, you know, how we speak or act having certain results if we had no control over that. It's not that we have complete control, you'll learn that, (laughs) Um, but we have some ability to influence the way the mind is going, yeah? So it's helpful to have that view, to believe that you have some influence. So we take the standpoint that we can learn to discern the difference between harmful and beneficial. As we get better at doing things that are beneficial, then we're gaining skill on the path, essentially. We have the ability to develop this skill. So note that there's been a shift um, in my language. So we've talked from, we've moved from thinking in terms of right, wrong, agree, disagree, which is the usual relationship to views, Is that one right? Is that one wrong? Do I believe it? Do I not? Should I act on it? That's all thinking. We've moved from there to skillful, unskillful. It may sound like a small language change, but it's quite consequential because skillful, unskillful, skill is something we can learn, we can practice, we can do. So we're still actually using the part of the mind that makes judgments in a way, but we're, it can discern. But we use instead, you know, instead of judgmental, we might use the word judicious. 
we're going to judiciously choose actions that bring beneficial results because uh, we have this, you know, we're acting with this first form of right view. So being judicious is quite different from being judgmental, where we're deciding that things are right or wrong, good or bad. Judicious um, is uh, judgment imbued with wisdom, I might say. The wisdom of the path of choosing actions that are skillful. So we're, we're still making choices, but they're based on the wisdom of this first type of right view, essentially. So then the next question might be, well, how do we discern that? <laughs> you know, what is that skill of view that we're trying to develop? This is a great question. The Buddha pointed toward our immediate experience. What we can be aware of and sense right now. So he suggested, I won't go into too much detail because um, I think Chris will cover this also, but he suggested that skillful actions have a feeling of ease associated with them, a feeling of freedom, if you will, whereas unskillful actions uh, have feelings more like, uh, these are words I've come up with from my experience, constriction, murkiness, desperation. There's a feeling in there that is not so good uh, when I'm doing something that is harmful or is based on these unskillful attitudes. And so we can actually come to sense this and use it as a guide for how to act or speak and even perceive. So we'll summarize these two components of the first kind of right view. Actions have consequences and we have some influence over what kind of actions we choose and hence what result occurs. That is actually what's called the law of karma. Karma is widely misunderstood in popular culture, so I didn't bring up the term until now, and you don't need to know it if it sounds too jargony. But that's essentially what, you know, what karma is about, actions and their results. So part of your task this month is going to be becoming a keen observer of your own views. So, for example, and there are uh, plenty of questions, reflection questions um, offered week by week, but just as example ideas, which views do you hold most tightly and which are more fluid for you? And there might be ones that you hold really tightly and somebody else is fluid on or ones that they hold really tightly and you can't see why it's perfectly fluid for you. Which views come into play in which situations? Do these views serve you and others well, or do they not? And if you begin looking with an eye towards what's skillful and what's unskillful, so using this first kind of right view, what do you discern about the consequences of certain actions? Can you feel them? Start to get in touch with that. Yeah, one more question. Generosity.
um, could, could not be good. Like let's say you're a social worker, you're in a situation where you're giving and giving and giving, and over here you're, you're being judicious, and so you need to balance them so that you don't give too much. Okay. Yeah, let me let me summarize what you said because I wasn't quick enough in giving you a microphone. <laughs> so it, there may be people who are listening to this later. So, so I'll summarize and say that you had a, a little. You were expressing concern about uh, acting from a place of generosity and kindness and compassion might go too far, um, and you would be giving too much. For example, as a social worker, giving and giving and giving, and that that's not so judicious. Maybe to do that is that your question? And finding that balance. Yeah, that's what I was thinking mm-hmm. about. Maybe I, I'm a little jet lagged. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I was thinking of that balance being in the heart space. That balance is critical. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, in that, um, this is a good point that many people many people have this question actually. So I'm glad that you asked it. Is how how to balance those broadening the sense of what compassion is, is very helpful. So sometimes people believe that compassion means to just be with, feel the other person's suffering, spend all your time solving their issues at the expense of any concern for yourself. But that is not especially compassionate, actually. So I would say that compassion contains the, of the wise motivations, contains the potential for that balance, for making sure that what I'm acting on is the good of the whole, of of everybody involved, which includes me. Um, And that may look different for different people. It's hard to look at somebody else's behavior and be sure whether or not they're making that balance. But internally, we could know that uh, when we've correctly met the needs of everyone in the situation. Yeah. Maybe that's enough for now. Okay, thank you. And we'll have a chance to talk um, talk more about this, and we're going to have Q&A later also. Okay, so those were, those were my thoughts on the initial, this first form of right view, and uh, essentially, you know, paying attention to, to karma, to the flow of uh, the quality of our actions in terms of its... Uh, skill and lack of skill, it's ethical quality. And so now we're going to have a chance to um, talk about views with some other people. So we're going to break into uh, groups of four would be good. Um, Why don't you go ahead and do that now, and then I'll give you the question. And we'll see if the numbers aren't working out. Please uh, raise your hand and we'll figure it out. So groups of four. Glad we're meeting each other already. Um, so the question that you're going to talk about for, um, I think what we'll do is we'll have each person um, share for about, let's say, three minutes, and then um, we'll ring the bell and we'll go to the next person. Okay. And here's the question. 
Describe a time when one of your views changed due to learning something new or having a different experience. What is it like now to reflect back on that view you held and then had to discard? And what does changing a view feel like? Sorry, that's several questions, but you get the point. You'll describe a time when you had to change a view and then you look back on this view that you no longer hold. What's your relationship to it now? And what is changing that? What did that feel like to change the view? Okay, so um, why doesn't the person with the shortest hair start? And we'll ring the bell in three minutes. All right, so winding up what you were saying. And then you can come back to your places in the hall. So that sounded very lively. (laughs) Views can be very interesting. (laughs) So um, it would be great if some people were willing to share a little bit about um, something that came up for them in the group. You you don't have to share exactly what you shared, but you could share about the process or you could... uh, just something to offer your wisdom to the wider group because not everyone got to hear. Or questions. And please use the microphone. Yeah. It's on? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, so one thing I noticed when I was listening to everybody else's story in this group and my own story is that there seemed to be this pattern with views. Yeah. That there seemed to be this pattern with views um, where you would hold a view maybe unbeknownst to you. And then at some point you'd observe something where you would realize that view doesn't hold in every case or maybe wrong or maybe like it, it, in some way, shape or form it is not the truth. Yes. Um, and then that would be very painful. And then if you learn to let go of that, and to, like just accept the fact that that view isn't actually truth, and there was a lot of freedom in that. Oh, beautiful! That's a uh, that's a good summary of how the path unfolds. <laughs> but no, it's it's very true that um, uh, one of our big learnings going along is how false much of what our mind tells us. <laughs> Is you know it's telling us all day what things mean, uh, what we should do, what this is all about, and again and again that rug gets uh, pulled out. If we observe more carefully, we start actually observing what causes what. Is this always true, or is just some of the time? A lot of that's just because we weren't really paying attention, and we have an opportunity to really check more carefully what it is that we're using as our operating system. Anyone else? 
we we had a little trouble identifying a specific view, but I think we realized that we were somehow under the influence of something that, I don't know, was pre-established or it was in our minds. We just couldn't name it exactly. Mm -hmm. But we can tell the difference before and after. Okay, yeah. So like it wasn't clear what the view was, but something has let go or changed. The the positive change. Uh Uh, Feeling more at ease. helps in our work relationships, how we see other people, how mm-hmm. we see the world, how we see ourselves. Beautiful. Yeah. That, that was very nice. Thank you. <laughs> and, and you don't always have to be able to articulate it. Um, and this points toward the fact that we've got a lot of stuff operating in there that we're not, you know, if you don't even know what let go, but something changed, what was that in there that was controlling yeah. us? manipulating us. And both of you highlighted, and I didn't pick it up on the first comment, the freedom or the ease that comes when the view yes. changes, lets go, realize, you know, we realize it's not tenable, so it's not held anymore. And that feeling is worth getting familiar with. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I grew up in the 60s, and... Uh, we learned about American history in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, I believe what I was told, uh, because it was in the books, it's history, it's supposed to be all true. I learned about the food pyramids and how meat and dairy was at the top of the food pyramids. I learned about the cowboys and Indians and how the Indians were wrong. I learned about the plantations of the South and how important it was to have inexpensive labor. I learned about the Mexican-American War. And um, I adopted this belief, communism was bad, and capitalism was good, and Cuba is bad, and all these things. And uh, uh, Albert, uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 Edison, Edison, uh, Thomas Edison, great, great man, you know, who heard of Nikola Tesla. And all these things I've learned later on, maybe in the last 15 years, that everything I learned when I was a child was just another lie. And it's kind of given me more peace over the years to kind of understand that more and more unfolds. And there was a need for that at the time for control. Because of all this trauma and all these lies, I've kind of expanded out a lot more to not take everything at its real value because it's written, and to grow in places where I know that somewhere along the continuum there is a truth in these things and that that more will be revealed. So at first I was kind of shocked, even with religion too, you know, even with my family, everything. But as things started opening and presented themselves, it was able, I was able better to be jumping from lily pad to lily pad and realizing that every, almost everything I've learned as a child was just one lie after another. So I'm feeling more peaceful to know that I wasn't crazy and that I'm learning more and feeling more comfortable in these situations as more unfolds. Well, thank you. That's a good insight is to have that openness. Yeah, thank you. Okay, last one. 
Thank you. Ice cream. There you ah, go. Okay. Here we go. Um, so I guess it, just an observation um, from our group. I was thinking that um, when we get, or I'll speak from I, when I got to the point where I want to let go of review, kind of like, to me, in my mind, it's kind of like building up to it, and it almost felt like it would be this dramatic event where I'm going to shed off this cloak and rise a new person and... You know, it's kind of like a one-time change, and then I'm going to march on this path. But in reality, it's almost like, you know, you're shedding little pieces. might be shedding a big piece, but there's still a lot that's there. And it's actually the work to be done is little, little pieces. They, they come back again and kind of challenge that view. And it's like, oh, let's revisit this again. And then start taking... It's more like scales and maybe <laughs> taking pieces, patches of the scale. That's sort of been my experience. Um, so while the sense of that big feeling of making that big step was finding ease when I take a big part of it out, but as life unfolds, little pieces of it keeps coming at it and then it's requiring me to go back and revisit that view or certain things holding me back. Yeah. So it has a spiral like quality, doesn't it? Where there's something and then you re- meet another layer of it somewhere. Yeah, down below. that iterative. But uh-huh. but iterative, it's not going back to the same point. That's right. It's, it's different. It's each at a time. different point. Yep. Yeah. So Very I just thought good I'd observation. Share that. Thank you. All right. So we're gonna take a ten minute break and um, We'll be back in here, and we'll ring the bell for you guys to come back. Thank you.